We are on lesson nine in the fall quarter. The title of the lesson is Jesus Enters Jerusalem. We will be starting Passion Week. The scriptures are Mark 11, verse 1, to Mark 12, verse 12. Okay, so the first section is Jesus Enters Jerusalem to Hosannas. And that is verses 1 through 11. And I will read that section. Okay, so Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them, just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Okay, so what do we see here? Yeah, so here they're um, hailing him as the coming Messiah. In a week, they're calling for his scalp. So, you know, people are fickle. So verses 1 through 6 uh, illustrates that either there was a prior arrangement with the owner of this cult, or we have Jesus' omniscience here. And um, so we have no textual indication of a prior arrangement. But Jesus does, does know people's minds, doesn't he? Jesus can read our minds. And that comes out in John chapter 2, 23 through 25. It says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here, this is early in his ministry in John. These people were believers, but they were fresh believers. And so they were still, um, you know, walking by the flesh for the most part. And uh, so Jesus wouldn't trust himself to them. You know, if you want to become a friend of God, you believe him and do what he says. So this that was before they were friends. They were saved. But you can be a believer and saved from hell and not be a friend of God. 
And that is the task of discipleship is to turn us into friends. And that's what we're doing here. We learn the scriptures, we trust it, and we do what it says. So this is from the quarterly. It says, when the crowd accompanying Jesus saw that he was going to ride a colt, they knew he meant to enter the city triumphantly. Pilgrims to Jerusalem usually finish the last stage of their journey on foot. Kings and other leaders, such as victorious generals, rode into the city on colts. So Jesus was riding in as victorious. And then verses 7 through 10 says, They brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, he sat on it. Many spread their coats in the road, others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's what they have to say to bring him back, too. That's the phrase they have to say to bring him back. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So do you think they understood that prophecy was being fulfilled here? But prophecy was being fulfilled. And uh, does anybody remember what prophecy that was? What Old Testament prophet that was? It was uh, Zechariah, who was a post-exilic prophet. He prophesied during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. But he prophesied of the coming Messiah. And it's in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that is exactly what was going on with Jesus on that day. And that was a fulfillment of that prophecy. Then look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So Jesus came to the temple, he looked around at everything. Why was he doing that? It was his property. <laughs> he owned it, the temple. It was the place for worship of him. So he, yeah, he was looking around to see if it was being used properly, was it used properly? No, it was not being used properly, and he will come and deal with that the next day. But it was already late, so he just looked around, and then he left town. So he owned it. The question is, what else does Jesus own? Yeah, Jesus owns everything. This is Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains. You and I are his. Even the unbelievers are his by virtue of creation. He created us. He created the earth. He created the universe. Everything is his. And so um, we need to remember that because we get high and mighty sometimes. This is from Romans 9. Yeah, everything that we have, he gives to us. 
Romans 9.21 says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And then just another quote from the quarterly. The phrase, He looked around at everything in the temple holds more significance than may first appear. As the Son of God, Jesus was examining his property to see how it was being used. He said nothing, but from the events of the next day, we know what his judgment was. Okay, so anything else about that? It's the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, he came into the temple, looked around. Section B, Jesus clears the temple. Somebody want to read that piece? That's 12 through 19. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so verses 12 through 14. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. He said to him, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So, you know, how can the fig tree be blamed? It was not the season for figs, it says. Yeah. But he uses the fig tree as a prophetic tool. And actually, the quarterly talked about this. in the, the At this time, usually buds, edible buds, could be found on fig trees. And these were like the precursors to ripe figs. And uh, so that is how they explain this. Um, this one, though, had nothing but leaves. So Jesus then makes a statement that Peter later interprets as a curse. So in verse 21, this is, this is the next day, Peter... Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. In between where he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and when they see it again the next day, Jesus cleanses the temple in between. So you can, the fig tree is a picture of Israel and its uh, leaders and the fact that there is no fruit being born in the witness nation. You know, Israel was the witness nation to the true God. So then in verses 15 through 18, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple and began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So Jesus drives out the money changers. He overturns their tables. There were markets for this outside the city. On the Mount of Olives, this um, this market inside the temple grounds was apparently a recent introduction by Caiaphas, and it was set up in the court of the Gentiles. So in your quarterly, 
there's a picture on page 74 of the temple. And you see the temple proper there is uh, the building, you know, number four, that dark one. The court of the Gentiles is number five. So it's outside of the temple, inside the courtyard. And what did Jesus say? He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, not just the Jews, for all the nations. That would include the Gentiles, and that is the part of the temple that they had desecrated with this. You know, and they took advantage, they charged high prices there for their money changing, and they took advantage of people. So, what Jesus is concerned with is Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And that is the that quote. Isaiah 56 and verse 7 includes the Gentiles in the house of prayer. It says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyfully joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. God wants to be God of everyone. He is God of everyone. And uh, the Jews are the witness nation, but the Lord calls all people to worship him. He wants the worship of everyone. The chief priests did nothing at this time, but they began seeking how to destroy him. Right? They're saying, okay, that's it. We got to get rid of this guy. And there's another one from the quarterly here. Leaving Bethany on Monday, Jesus returned to Jerusalem. Along the way, he did a curious thing. He cursed a fruitless fig tree. He did not say why he did this, but the meaning of the curse became plain through what he did next. He emptied the temple of people who were behaving irreverently. So that that cut into their profits, and that people don't like. Okay, so anything else about that? Jesus clears the temple. Yeah, it's sandwiched in between. The, the clearing of the temple is the curse of the fig tree, and then you see the effects of the curse. The effects of the curse are pretty dramatic. So let's look at that next. That is section C. It's called Prayer with Faith, which is, you know, I like prayer. I think prayer is wonderful. So this this was a good, yeah, truly does too. And Vicky does too. We all do. So I'll go ahead and read that. That's verses 20 through 25. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So the roots had withered and everything above it. So it was a stick, the whole thing. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. 
Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Okay, so Jesus tells us two things about prayer there, doesn't he? So the the fig tree withered from the root up. And so because the, uh, the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between these two episodes of the fig tree, one that it's cursing, and when the results of the cursing, you can see that God has planned for severe judgment on Israel and its leaders and its religious leaders because they're not bearing the fruit. So how do we bear the fruit that the Lord wants for us to bear? Yeah, no, the, the fruit is the outcome of our connection to Jesus. The, the fruit of the Spirit is one. The fruit of the Spirit is one. Mm-hmm. I would say our service in the church is one. Our, our service in the church, because we are motivated by the Lord moves us in how we should serve, right? Yeah. Basically, I think you just remain connected to Jesus by being in his word and being in prayer. And as you do that, you get urges of what you should do. For example, Annika urged me to, because Annika this morning said, did you get your box? Well, I haven't. Well, I think that's the Holy Spirit working, saying, did you get your box? (laughs) They're using Annika, you know. And that sort of thing, and as you respond to that, then you bear fruit. Um, You don't make up your own fruit. If you try to make up your own fruit, it's of the flesh, and it won't be rewarded. But as you're moved by the Spirit, and that's that's I think that's what taking up your cross is, because, you know, as we're growing up, we have our own ambitions, we have our own plans, and things like that. Well, Jesus has different plans many times. And if we respond to him, he will change our direction in life. And that can be a cross to us. But if we follow it, it's very wonderful what happens. So that is how you bear fruit for Jesus. And the nation of Israel was to bear fruit for Jesus as they looked at his word, as they looked at the Hebrew Bible, and they responded in faith to the Mosaic Law. They should have responded in faith to the Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law told them what to do. If they did it, they would have borne fruit, but they didn't. They found all sorts of ways to go around it. So that's becoming a a disciple is learning that process, you know, of how do you bear fruit? Well, you go to the Lord every day and say, what do you have for me today, Lord? You go to the Lord and say, what do you have for me today? Yeah, ask the Lord, what do you have for me today? And he will guide you. And that's the way to have blessing. So verses 23 and 24. Well, verse 22 
Jesus, as he answers, Peter says, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. <laughs> yeah, we, amen. We want to have faith in God. And then he makes an amazing pronouncement. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. They were on the Mount of Olives at the time. And they could see the Dead Sea from where they were. So he, that's why I was using that illustration. And it, one day, Jesus' foot will touch on the Mount of Olives. It will split. And it probably will be cast into the sea, you know, because the Dead Sea will become a freshwater reservoir at that time. So, if we're looking at this, how can we uh, pray in such a way that our prayers are answered? We want our prayers to be effective, don't we? We don't want to pray for no reason. So, how, how do we pray so that our prayers are answered? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, that's the second that's the second admonition he gives. Verse twenty five, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. If you're in sin when you're in prayer, and unforgiveness is sin, then the Lord will not answer your prayers. Yeah. So you you want to not hold a grudge, you want to be willing to forgive. Um, and the first one is you have to believe that God will do it. Now, are all our prayers answered positively? No, they're not. And what we want to do is get a better batting average. <laughs> So how do you get a better batting average? Okay, you want right, you want to have no grudges against anyone. But you want to look and see what God's will is. Okay. If your prayers align with God's will, you'll have better batting average. And the way you do that is look through the Bible. Look through the Bible. There are some things that we know are God's will. The, for example, the Lord tells us specifically to play, not play, to pray for our political leaders. He tells us to pray for our political leaders. So it, we know that if we do that, you know, he will answer those prayers. I don't know that we see them all the time, but I think that the uh, election of this Mike Johnson out of the blue for Speaker of the House was definitely an answer to prayer. Um so, and, you know, perhaps our president's support of Israel, you know, such as it is, is also an answer to prayer. Because that does not seem to be his tendency. So, um, and we have been praying for him. So we want to pray for our political leaders. What, what are other things that God tells us specifically to pray for? Can you think of any? 
Salvation for people. Yeah, salvation for other people. He praises, tells us to pray for our workers to go into the harvest also. So to pray for missionaries, things like that. To pray that we would be missionaries in our local area, that we would go into the harvest. Um, yeah, you know, things that glorify him. Those are things. And he tells us to pray for what we need materially, our food. You know, so I think that's a way to increase your batting average in prayer is to look through the Bible and say, okay, what is God's will? And and pray in accordance with that. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So when you're praying, you must believe that he is there on the other side of your prayer and that he hears you and that he's able to take care of it. Um, James chapter 5 tells us we can pray for health. If you're sick, you know, we can call the elders of the church to come and pray. James chapter 5, yeah. And then, you know, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 has multiple topics to pray for. You pray for forgiveness. Pray not to be tempted to evil. Pray for our food. And honor God in your prayer. So I think that, and you know, just as an aside, I think it's good to keep a list of prayer requests because the Lord will answer sometimes much later. You know, and then by then, if you haven't written it down, you forgot about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I have lots of lists at home of prayers, you know, through the years. And they're all, most of them are marked off, you know. But, yeah, do not do not allow the sin of unforgiveness to hinder your prayer. Another thing that can hinder your prayer if you're a husband is maltreatment of your wife. If you treat your wife poorly, that will hinder your prayers. That's what First Peter 3, 7 says, you want to treat your wife well. First Peter 3, verse 7. Yeah. Yeah, you want to treat your wife well, you know, treat her. Love her as Christ loved the church. Giving yourself up for her. That's how you treat her. Okay, so section D, Jesus' enemies question his authority. That's verses 27 through 33. Do you think you can you read that one, Shirley? Twenty-seven through through thirty-three. Okay, thank you. He was wise. He is wise. He is extremely wise. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, verse uh, twenty-seven. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came. To him, so these three groups, chief priests, scribes, the elders, the leaders of Israel, and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? So, what things? He, he cleared the temple courts, right? He cleared the temple courts. Well, they're saying, who Who told you you could do that? So by what authority 
In other words, who do you think you are? That's what they're saying to him. Who do you think you are, Jesus? So, and Jesus gives a counter question, and this is a tactic in rabbinic debate, apparently, to, to answer a question with a question. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he put them in a box. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. So this put them in a box. Who gave John the Baptist his authority? That's what he's asking. Well, most of the common people thought John was from God himself, and that's because he was <laughs> from God. You know, Jesus said he was the one with the power of uh, Elijah. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. And... Uh, but these, these, these groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, did not believe that. They did not believe that. So they thought that he was from men. That's what they truly thought. But if they said that, they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid the crowd would riot. So, yeah, that, you know, that's one of the things that is hard on our human flesh is that all the authority is the Lord's. We are followers, and we always want to lead. We, you know, we think we do, and that's just human. That's fallen human nature. So, and you know, these guys got a taste of that, and they liked it, and they didn't want to give it up, and so they didn't believe. They refused to believe. Exactly, they refused to believe. So they were caught in a losing situation. Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So they answered, We do not know. They copped out. And so Jesus answered, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They already knew, you know, that they'd suppressed the truth in their own minds. And so, and they're out to kill him. So they had sin in their minds, terrible sin, Hamas-like sin in their minds. Okay, we're going to have uh, some free time here today because we're at the last section. Jesus describes the religious leaders so I'll read that one. That's chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. So when you see a parable, and Dane wrote a little paper about this, look just prior to what happens in the parable. Usually the parable is an, is an attempt to explain what just happened. So here Jesus had this interaction with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and now he's going to speak a parable. And you can relate this parable back to what just happened. He said, A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave 
to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Okay, so this parable is pretty easy to interpret, right? Some of them are more difficult, but this one, he just had this interaction with the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and they refused to believe in him. And the Old Testament prophets have come through all the Hebrew scriptures, and did they treat the Old Testament prophets well? No, they did not. You know, the, the kings were always antagonistic, for the most part, against the Old Testament prophets. The pe people were antagonistic. The leaders were antagonistic. Isaiah, they sawed in half. You know, they did all sorts of terrible things to the Old Testament prophets. And now, God has sent his own son. They want to do the same thing to him. And so Jesus is saying, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus is prophesying about himself that he's going to be killed here. Um, and what did the owner of the vineyard do? They sent, he sent the Romans in AD 70, didn't he? He set Israel aside for 2,000 years. And he raised up the church. Okay? He didn't take Israel's promises away because he made them a promise. But he delayed the coming kingdom, which Jesus came to present to them, for 2,000 years. So it's much like the fig tree. It's withered from the roots up. Wasn't it? So this is a parable illustrating the unbelieving religious leaders and I just want to look up uh, Galatians 4. False religion is always the hardest on true believers. You know, you think about the, um, the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition of the Roman Church, um, what happened with the Catholic Church against the Protestant Reformation, you know, um, so people who tr follow the Lord biblically are usually persecuted by false religious people. So this is Galatians 4, 28 and 29. It says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. So if you're following a religious system according to the flesh, you, you will tend to persecute those who follow according to the Spirit. Legalists always persecute true believers. And then Jesus identifies himself as the stone which the builders rejected. Jesus becomes the cornerstone of the church and, of course, of the nation of Israel as well. And that's the end of today's lesson. Yeah, I mean, forgiveness can be very difficult because we get hurt. And, uh, you know, but um, it's, um, we can do it with the Lord's help and it will make our prayers more effective. Yeah. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, uh, this teaching of Jesus on prayer. And we thank you that he is the foundation stone of the church and of the nation of Israel and of everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.